Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, two verses, verses 20 and 21. Hear now the word of God. But as he, that is Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask him to make it so. Lord, our lives are not sanitary and perfect. In fact, our lives are beset on all sides by sin and sorrow and difficulty and sickness and pain. And that is the sort of world that your son entered into when he was born of Mary. And it was precisely that sort of world that your son came to rescue us from. And so this morning, would you set our eyes on Jesus and would you give us repentant hearts to receive the bad news about ourselves and the good news about your son, which is given to us here in this text. Send your spirit to make it so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of years ago, I attended my grandfather's funeral back in Kansas, and by that point, I was a a minister, and so my family was very excited. They had a minister who could officiate his own grandfather's funeral, which is a strange feeling. If you've ever officiated a funeral for your own family, it's an unusual experience. Um, One of the things I found myself doing, at least, was playing the role of the pastor at the funeral instead of the mourner. And so I was speaking to family members and saying things to them like, I'm so glad to see you and I'm sorry for the occasion. It's good to see family, but you really wish that the occasion wasn't because of a funeral. You really wish that it wasn't because of something grim sort of hanging over the proceedings. And maybe you can relate to that feeling. Well, I have a dour sort of personality as it is. And so maybe this might sound very predictable, but I feel that way in some sense about the month of December and about the Christmas season. Because, you know, here we are, we, you know, we preach the, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus all year long. We preach about these truths, but there's also no denying that uh, Christmas time is this time when we are reflecting upon the incarnation, upon Jesus, the Son of God, entering into human flesh, becoming one of us. And what I want to suggest is that this season is a little bit like a funeral in the sense that it is good to see Christ. Here we are, we're meditating upon the incarnation. It's good to see him. And last week we saw how he came to show us the Father, to reveal the invisible God to us. It's good to see him. It's good to see God the Son incarnate, living, walking among us. But there's also a major sense in which we're sorry for the occasion. 
Now, why? What's the occasion? What is it that makes the birth of Christ so bittersweet? Well, the bittersweetness is here in our text today. It's here in just these two verses. And so in the time we have, I want to explore that this morning. I want this. I want to explore the bittersweetness of the season. You know, the birth of Jesus is the greatest, wisest, most beautiful act that God ever performed in all of human history. But the occasion for that act, the cause for that act, the need for that act was the ugliness and darkness of the human heart. And what that baby would have to grow up and do and accomplish in order to set us free from that ugliness and that sin and that darkness. And so all I have this morning is, is two points. If we want to know Jesus the rescuer, first we have to know what he came to rescue us from. And so point one is a world of trouble and point two is a world of forgiveness. Point one, we have this. Uh, we are in trouble. This is a world of trouble. You know, last week we began with a question that I explained was quite difficult to answer in a way that really does justice to it. And that was the question, why did Jesus take on human flesh? Why did Jesus come into the world? And the first answer to that question, which again we saw last week, was Jesus came into the world to show us God. He came to show us the invisible God. God is invisible. And yet this child born who was called Emmanuel, God with us. And so what happened? By addition, God took on human flesh. He never yielded being divine, but he took on humanity. And even now he hasn't ceased to be God. He, he still is God. He always will be God. But he will also from henceforth always be man as well. And here, here is the issue. In Scripture, when people actually meet God, it is not a serene and pleasant experience. You know, normally meeting God is this terrifying encounter that leaves people reduced to sorrow, cursing, and weeping. Think of the, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the Lord, and when he does, his response is not to say, Oh, the Lord is just so wonderful. He sets my heart at ease. Right? That is not Isaiah's response. When he meets God, he pronounces woes on himself. He curses himself. He curses the people. He, he is so broken up over meeting God. And I think in our hearts, we sometimes think that if, if we were to meet God, we would be elated. And we need to also come to terms with the fact that if we're sinners, then meeting God is going to have its own element of terror as well. And look at what Isaiah does. He throws himself down in the temple. He can barely lift his eyes up to God. And what does he do? He says, woe is me. He, he speaks a curse on himself. Woe is me, for I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is it that makes Isaiah's experience meeting God so deeply unpleasant? It's nothing less than his own sin. His own sin is the problem. He doesn't fault God in any way. He doesn't look at God and say, you know, God, if you weren't like this, then I wouldn't be melting right now. He says, you, I am the one with the problem in this situation. And he speaks about himself, and he addresses himself, and he curses himself. And what he points to is his own uncleanness. He says, I'm unclean, and just being in the presence of the holy God is distressing to me. So he meets God, and his response is not to sing a happy song, 
his response is to cover his mouth and to realize just how dark and and wicked and unholy he and his people are. Isn't that fascinating? He meets God, and it is a highly unpleasant experience. How do you approach God? Is When you think of God, do you, do you approach him with fear and trembling? Do, do you approach God, even worship, even the notion of coming here this morning to, to sing and to speak the name of Yahweh aloud? Did you, did you come in here with a sense that, that you are a sinner and that God is holy? And when you pray or or, or when you come to church, or when you come to worship, or when you come to read scripture on your own, do you come with a sense of your own unworthiness? Do you, do you come with a sense of, of the sins that you've committed this week? Do you ever think to yourself, I don't deserve to be able to do this. I don't, I don't even deserve to be able to worship him today. I, I can't believe that he's letting me breathe long enough to speak his name. Does that ever cross your mind when you do that? Or do you take it for granted? Because the angel tells Joseph exactly why Jesus came. And it was not because I'm okay and you're okay and we're all okay. It is not why Jesus came. The angel says to him, he will save his people from their sins. You see, the good news is prefaced by this unavoidable reality of life, which is God's people have sin. And that is a problem if we're going to be God's people. And so we need to be rescued. That's what the angel says here. He says, we need to be rescued. We need to be saved. (coughs) And in that sense, there's a darkness to this season. There's a darkness. And and the darkness does not come from God. The, The darkness is not his fault. The darkness is our own sin, which makes the brightness of Jesus so bright and so beautiful. So part of the brightness, part of the beauty of the incarnation is is what it's meant to remedy. What is he here to do? What is he here to correct? Think about what's being described here. He is describing a rescue mission. All right, this is a rescue mission sent by God from the deepest, darkest place imaginable. That's what he's rescuing us from. Back in June and July of 2019, there was a a junior soccer team and they entered the system of caves in Thailand. Maybe you remember this. It was just the biggest story in the world at the time. They'd gone two and a half miles into this cave system. And after they went into the cave system, there was rainwater that ran into one of the dips in the tunnel. And as it filled the dip in the tunnel, it simply became a closed off section. And no one could get through. They couldn't get back. And so for over two weeks, the soccer team was trapped inside of this system of caves. And in the meantime, what's happening? They're getting hungry. They're getting thirsty. Things are becoming desperate. And the reality was without a rescue, there was no way those soccer players were ever going to emerge from, the, from those caves. They had to be rescued by someone else. They would have perished on their own there. When you find yourself uttering that phrase or thinking of that phrase, saved from our sins, I want you to remember that this is not just a passing phrase. It's not just a a glib statement that Christians make because, well, we're Christians and we're supposed to say that we have sin, right? We're talking about a rescue from the darkest pit, from the deepest danger, from the most terrifying trouble that you can imagine. Do, do, Do you know... 
Do you know that this child was born because you were deep in the darkest cave? You were more than two and a half miles deep. You were infinitely deep in the cave, right? Do you really believe that in your own heart? Because that's going to color how we approach God. That's going to go, color how we think about this season. That's going to color the sense of gratitude that we feel when we think about the incarnation. We're talking about rescue from sin. We're talking this morning in our first point about this place that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in a world of trouble. You now, Jesus was not born into this world because it was just time. It was just time that he made an appearance. Um, in fact, if you took last week's sermon in isolation, that would not be sufficient reason for the incarnation, simply because God needed to meet us. That's not it. He was born of a woman, born under the law. He lived under the law because we're lawbreakers. And he was coming as a representative of his people, and there needed to be a sacrifice, and, he, and there needed to be a lawkeeper. He was born because of the darkness of sin. It's your sin, and it's my sin. That's where the bitterness of the season comes from. We're going to get to the sweetness in a moment. But if you don't appreciate the bitterness, if you don't appreciate the reason why the incarnation was necessary, then you will just approach this as a routine that we do once a year. Right? You'll just approach this as something that, oh, well, this is something that we talk about, or this is something that the church has always talked about. But you have to, we have to be struck by the, the personality of this, the personal nature of this. This is about you and me. This is about our sin. That's why he had to come. But second, I want you to notice the, 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 the thing that makes all of it sweet. It's not just bitter. It's bitter sweet because Jesus didn't just come to acknowledge our sin. He didn't just come to sympathize with our weakness. He came to save us from our sin. That's the, the purpose of the incarnation of this child. Joseph is getting the gospel here. Joseph is hearing the message of salvation even as he's, as he's speaking to the angels. So, so don't underestimate the importance and glory of what Jesus did. The angel comes specifically to declare it so that Joseph can know and by extension so that we all can know. You know, we're so used as Christians to talking about Jesus saving people from their sins, saving us from our sins, that it can become sort of a shibboleth. It can become something that we say so that everybody knows that we believe these things. And after a while, we can begin to, to gloss it over. Or we can speak about these things glibly as these truths that, of course, we're supposed to just rattle them off. As though saving someone from their sin is something that we see all the time. As though saving somebody from their sin is just no big deal at all. As though anyone can do it whenever they want. Of course someone can be saved from their sins. But think about what it took for Christ to save his people from their sins. As Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, what does the angel with the sword do? He's posted at the entrance to the garden, and there is still grace there. Even as they're driven out, there's grace. Because they're walking out, and they're carrying something, as it were, in their hand. They're carrying with themselves a promise, even as the flaming sword is behind them. They're walking out into this wasteland, certainly something very different than the garden. And what are they carrying with them? They're carrying in their hands a promise from, from God to the serpent that that serpent's head is going to be crushed. They're leaving that garden knowing that this is not the last word. What's taking place here in this garden is they're being driven out. 
And they're carrying with them a promise. And then what happens? God makes the same promise to Abraham. And he builds upon that promise. And he says, you're going to have offspring as numerous as the sea. As, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham's descendants... What did he have to do then in order to accomplish what Christ did? Abraham's descendants had to be rescued from starvation and they had to be taken to another land for 400 years. What happened there? They grew to be this huge nation. And then what happened? God rescues them from Egypt. He rescues them from slavery. He brings them back to the land that he promised to give them in the first place. And then what did he have to do to make this child's birth happen? They had, he, God had to take those people and he had to take them in all their stubbornness and he had to conquer the land, this land where, where the law of God would be instituted, however imperfectly. And after years and years of being rescued from their enemies, they are then conquered by Alexander the Great, who gives all of the people a common language, Greek. Suddenly, the world as at least they knew it was united by this language. Caesar Augustus, through all sorts of political machinations, becomes the ruler of the known world by that point, and then he calls for a census. Not because the Bible said he was supposed to call for a census. He decided to call for a census because he wanted to have a census, because he had his own political reasons why. And so bringing Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem by all of the movements of the, of, the, of the nations. Finally here, Joseph and Mary are brought to this little village, Bethlehem, so that their names can be counted. Why did he do it? Because he promised in the book of Micah that he would. And then in due time, what happened in order to accomplish these things? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a place under the law of God so that Christ could keep that law perfectly. What else did it take? He lived for 33 years. He taught the truth. He lived out the righteous life that you and I certainly could not achieve. He was betrayed by one of his disciples for money. Pontius Pilate decided to set Barabbas free and crucify Jesus. Jesus is then crucified between two thieves. And on that cross, the sins of his people are laid on his weary, bloodied shoulders. And in that moment, he becomes the most sinful person who ever lived. Not because he was bad or because he had sinned, but because the sins of others became his. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And as he is dying, what does he do? He quotes the scriptures. He reminds himself that all, and all those listening that this is no accident. It is a fulfillment of God's word. It is the end of a long, wise, good plan finally coming to pass. He's buried in the tomb of a rich man and in a tomb for three days, all spoken of in prophecy, all spoken beforehand, all laid out with precision and perfectly executed. Think about what we're talking about here. We are talking about the rising and falling of nations. We're talking about great men coming to power and then leaving power. We're talking about the miraculous rescue of a people from deep danger of being killed by Pharaoh and then Nebuchadnezzar and then numerous other kings after them and dozens of other dangerous threats. 
At every point, things might have happened differently, but by the providence and wisdom of God, they never did. Think about that soccer team from Thailand once again. Consider what it took to save those boys. Uh, eventually, Thailand had to deploy the, the equivalent of their Navy SEALs to rescue this group. So the whole world was gripped by their rescue. You had inventors like Elon Musk inventing little submarines so that the SEALs could maybe get the boys out of the cave who couldn't swim. Uh, according to some reports, the rescue effort involved more than 10,000 people, including over 100 divers, many rescue workers, representatives from about 100 government agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, and 10 police helicopters, 7 police ambulances, and more than 700 diving cylinders, and pumping more than a billion liters of water out of the caves. It was an extraordinary rescue, and I want you to know something. The rescue of that soccer team is pennies compared to what it takes to rescue one person from their sin. A drop in the bucket. There is no way to overstate the feat that it takes to save a person from their sin. The sort of thing that leaves you flat on your face if you were to meet God. In order for us to utter this phrase this morning, this precious passage in the text, he will save his people from their sins, in order for that to be uttered aloud, God had to move heaven and earth and guide all of human history with perfect precision. That's why Paul says it well in Romans chapter 5, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The forgiveness of sins is no small thing. It came at great cost. If you, think of, if you think that guiding the rising and falling of kingdoms is difficult and costly, consider this, the Son of God was sinless. Right, that child in Bethlehem is pure and, and perfect and, and sinless, and that never changed throughout his life. It's not like he was born pure and sinless and then other things happened in his life and it got complicated. He always stays pure and sinless and unstained by sin to the point that he says, which of you can accuse me of sin? And all they had to do was bring one sin forward and present it. And no one ever could. Christ came not so that we could have a sentimental season where we buy gifts for each other, as nice as that may be, but he actually came to die. That's the reason he came. That's, why, that's the reason the child is born. He came to be the one who would bear our sins. Which gives us a moment of reflection, especially during a time you might be pretty stressed out. You might have a lot of things on your plate. Maybe, you're, maybe you are just run ragged and you are ready actually for this week to be over. Um, you know, I think I would ask you the question, what is the biggest problem in your life? A lot of people would say, you know, my job or, or money or sickness or, or politicians or any other number of issues. You just... Amplify that infinitely and you'll find somebody with a different answer. But until you see yourself and the state of your own heart as the biggest problem in your life, you're going to continue to be unimpressed by these words. He will save his people from their sins. Have you come to the place where you really, 
you really do see, you really do believe that your sin is your most serious problem. Do you realize that as long as your heart is rotten to the core, it doesn't matter who is running the country or whether your job is going well or something else is happening in the universe. Until your sin problem is dealt with, everything else in life is just, to quote an old cliche, it's just rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic while it sinks. We need to be made right with God. We need our sins to be dealt with. We need our sins to be forgiven and and lifted. And and the angel looks at Joseph and he tells him, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's exactly what God is doing right now. And if you're here this morning and you are an admirer of Jesus, that is great. If you're here this morning and you respect Jesus, that's wonderful. You should respect Jesus. But if you've never learned to bow the knee to Jesus... And rest in Jesus and put all of your hope in Jesus and and lose it from yourself. Then put down the eggnog and stop singing jolly songs because this is no season for you. Do you love the Christmas season? Let me encourage you not to love it for the decorations. Don't love it for the smells. Don't love it for the carols. Don't love this season because of your nostalgia for years past. Don't even love this season just because of your good memories There is one reason why we should love the incarnation. Because when that child was born, he was born to die for his people. And if you could have seen him that day, if you could have gone back to the day of his birth, and you looked at that child and you knew the whole story from the beginning to the end, you found out how he's going to save his people from their sins. You would have looked at this child, and I suspect you would have have said what, what I would suggest which is, it is so good to see you. And I'm sorry for the occasion. That child was born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago because we are deep in the cave and we need a serious rescue. Let's pray. Lord, you sent your precious and only son to rescue us from a world of trouble and sin. And you rescued us by means of the perfect sacrifice of your perfect son. And so I pray that as this season draws to its climax, that we would not have our eyes set on the usual trappings or on those easy distractions. Instead, O God, set our eyes on your son, born of a woman, born under the law, in that little town of Bethlehem, born to die so that we might live. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.